You're listening to 95.7 FM, KDRT-LP, Davis, California. And that music means it's time for the Davis Garden Show. This is Don Shore. Lois Richter is on vacation. Temperature right now as I'm preparing this broadcast on July 26th. For you to listen to it on July 27th, 2023 is 91 degrees today here in the Sacramento Valley. That's going to be pretty much our high for the day according to the National Weather Service. Tonight will be 56. For the record, average high temperature this time of year in this area would be about 91. So we're just right about on average. Average night temperature, right around 56. So right about average there as well. Thursday, uh, the day of the broadcast, 87 degrees, maybe a little warmer. Thursday night, 56 degrees. Friday, sunny and 90. Friday night, 56 degrees. Saturday, sunny and 91. Saturday night, 57. Sunday, warming up a bit, 93. Sunday night, Around 57, Monday 92, Monday night 56, and Tuesday cooling down to 89. That is really average temperature range here in the Sacramento Valley in the summertime, days in the low 90s, nights in the mid to upper 50s. We did have, of course, a spell of hot weather last weekend, just as we did a couple of weekends before. And so we've now had eight seven, eight days, 100 degrees or higher so far this summer, also fairly typical. And early in the season, we had a lot of cooler weather, which was and has continued, was having and is continuing to have some impact on people's gardens. Periods of high temperature have led to some watering issues and some sunburn issues on fruits and vegetables. So we've been having a lot of conversations with customers about how deeply they're watering. One that I do keep encountering is not watering wide enough, uh, not making a big enough basin around a young tree. They're putting on what sounds like the right number of gallons. They're doing it just about the right frequency, and the plant still got kind of burnt during the heat wave. Um, When I look at the picture, when they send me the picture, I've mentioned this before, so don't want to harp on it too much, but the area around the young tree, in this case it was an avocado, another one was a citrus, prior to that was a, a maple tree, the area around it is dry and the roots can't penetrate that dry soil. So my immediate suggestion has been to widen the watering basin if you're watering by hand. Add a couple of drip emitters if you want to expand out the drip system. Whatever it takes to get water past the existing root zone so the roots can explore the surrounding soil and make a bigger root system. When you're just giving them what they need, then we have a period with higher temperatures or wind, it may not quite be enough. And at that point, you get some wilt, some stress, or some sunburn on the leaves. And within regard to the statistics of that, for about the last 10 days, our evapotranspiration rate here in the valley has been just about 0.3 inches per day. 0.3 inches, usually about 0.25, 0.26 We've been running 0.29 to 0.3. So 10, 15% above average. Not so much the high temperature days as the windy days in between that we kind of forget about as being a big factor in evapotranspiration. Water deeper, water wider. Mostly that was all that was involved in the cases that I've been looking at. Of course, we have still a lot of conversations with people who simply aren't running their drip systems long enough. Real simple bypass on that because people get a little concerned when I say, well, maybe you should reset your timer for this. If this one plant is showing stress and everything else seems to be fine. 
might be simple just to take a hose and give that plant an extra deep soaking. One thing I'm doing right now on my farm is going around as we have any projection of a heat wave coming on. I'll go out and real, really deep soak some of the intermediate established plants on the property. They don't need it as frequently as a new plant. They don't need a deep watering uh, as a larger tree might need, or they're not really ready to be on their own in the case of native or drought tolerant plants. So every few weeks, I give them a really thorough soaking right before a heat wave comes on. You have to use some judgment about that, but we are seeing some, some stress, mostly because of inadequate breadth, shall I say, of watering, not depth, it's not the frequency, it's just not getting water to the whole root zone. KDRT is community radio, that's public radio. We rely on contributions from listeners like you to fund our operating costs. If you like what you hear, if you like the Davis Garden Show, if you like Jazz After Dark, That's Life, all the other great programming here at KDRT, just head on over to kdrt.org and click on the support button. There's lots of great programming here at KDRT, and one of the long-running music programs is... Davis Music Connections with host Ned and Clyde, who do a special program this week. Tony Bennett, longtime jazz singer, pop singer, died on July 21st at the age of 96. Each of them saw Bennett perform. Ned, about 30 years ago. Clyde, in the early 1950s. Few performers had a career as long as Tony Bennett's. He hadn't quite got popular yet, says Clyde. We were staying at the Statler in L.A., and they have a small room there, and Tony Bennett was doing about three sets a night, had a single guitar player behind him. It was really cool. Davis Music Connections is live Tuesdays, 3 to 4 p.m., rebroadcast during the week, and music shows are only archived for two weeks, so get in there and check this one out pretty quick. Davis Music Connections here at KDRT. Our friends at the UC Davis Arboretum have announced their lineup of fall 2023 plant sales. You can shop the one-acre nursery to find an incredible selection of attractive low-water plants perfect for our region. The first is Saturday, September 30th. That's a split sale, members only, 9 to 11, public 11 to 1. Saturday, October 21st is also a split sale, members 9 to 11, public 11 to 1. And then the clearance sale, Saturday, November 4th, open to everybody at 9 o'clock, runs till 1 p.m. I do suggest you get there early. These are all held at the Arboretum Teaching Nursery, and you can find a map for that and more information. And as they get closer to the sale event, they post the entire inventory online. Simply go to arboretum.ucdavis.edu. Planning ahead for Lois's vacation this week, we went ahead and pre-recorded some answers to some of the questions that had built up in the mailbag. We do sometimes get a little behind on your inquiries. We do love to get your notes and comments, and most of them come to davisgardenshow at gmail.com, davisgardenshow at gmail.com. We did get one as a comment uh, at the kdrt.org Davis Garden Show page. We also check that. I'll probably get an answer to that one in the next week or so. You can contact us either way, uh, but we're always happy to hear from you. Pictures are great, and if it's a picture of something you're really proud of, uh, it might end up on the homepage for Davis Garden Show. So here we go to the mailbag. Melissa from Glendale in Southern California writes, can you recommend a low hedge alternative to boxwood? I'm looking for a hedge to be better suited to our dry hot zone ideally it would be shaped to a two to three feet tall and have lower water requirements many thanks in advance and please keep up the good work um well this is a good long-term topic but i'll just toss out a couple of them here i don't know what the rest of your yard looks like so whether these would fit with a more formal look or not but uh, tucrium which is in the mint family the germander group there are some big ones but there's also a very dwarf one called tucrium camadris which only gets a couple feet tall it's a nice 
tight dark green foliage and a really pretty flower like other members of the Tucrium group. So that would be more for, a, I would call it a Mediterranean look. It's a little more rounded in its growth habit, although you could certainly clip it if you want. And the Tucrium are, are quite drought tolerant. There is, here's a funny one, the dwarf pomegranates. Now, bear in mind that pomegranates are deciduous, the, every kind, the fruiting kind, the flowering kind. Well, there's two that have been on the market forever, Chico and Nana. They're both very dwarf. And if, if you don't mind the fact that they're bare in the wintertime, they have other features that you might, might like. One, they have flowers in right now, actually April, May, well, late April, May, and into early June. Red flowers, very pretty, just like the big pomegranates. They set little pomegranates, which are edible. They're not great, but they're edible. You know, so if kids want to eat them, that's fine. They're, so they're like, they're like a perfect little miniature pomegranate tree. And they range from two to six feet, depending on which variety you get, but they're all prunable. I have found pomegranates remarkably prunable, the big ones, the little ones, so you can clip them like a hedge. Then they turn really nice color in the fall, bright yellow fall color. And here, December, January, February, they're out of leaf. So that may not work with your, your look, but they're, it's an incredibly tough, incredibly drought tolerant plant. So there's just a couple right there. There are some rock roses that might fit in what you're doing. Uh, there's actually one rosemary that I'm going to mention, although I hope I'm not going to send you on a wild goose chase on this one, the variety called Mozart, Mozart rosemary. Up here, it's pretty easy to get because it's an Arboretum All-Star. So the Arboretum propagates it and sells it. And we've had some local nurseries do it. It's a very tight growing, compact rosemary. So if you know rosemary, Beautiful flowers in the wintertime, blue flowers in the wintertime, very attractive to bees and, uh, and also to other wildlife as it continues to bloom into the spring. Clippable, you can cut rosemary any way you want. You can shear it into a hedge if you want to. If you're in Davis and you happen to stop by my garden center, the building next door has Irene Rosemary, which is a ground covering form of rosemary. And they've got a maintenance crew that comes in once a month with head shears. I kind of wish they wouldn't do this, but they do. <laughs> they clip it into a perfect little three by three hedge and it looks great for what it is. It would certainly look better in my opinion if they didn't do that, but it's right next to the sidewalk. So I guess they feel like they have to do it. And so the, now the, right next to the sidewalk in the Sacramento Valley against a concrete wall that faces south and a driveway on the other side on a hundred degree day it's probably 115 degrees on that rosemary hedge and it thrives on it it's absolutely fine rosemary has done great there along with lantana and gazanias and other things these rosemary plants are many years old and they just keep clipping them back so if you inadvertently get one of the spreading kinds like irene or some of the others you'll have to prune them a lot if you don't mind doing that that can be done but this one called mozart if your local garden center can find it it actually stays very compact so there will be others I'm sure we can think of that would that would be possibilities. There's a little dwarf boxwood, or excuse me, a little dwarf um, barberry that some people like to use. I don't consider that super drought tolerant, but it might be okay actually in your area in terms of drought. Uh, sunset gold coleonema, the pink breath of heaven. The sunset gold is a very compact one that's very commonly used in low water landscapes. We've had a problem locally with crown rot on that plant, on the breath of heaven, the golden breath of heaven, as well as the original form diosma. Um, I don't know if that's a problem everywhere. So I just wanna throw that out there because we've backed off from recommending it here with our heavier soils. People tend to lose them from, they think they're overwatering crown rot. So, but it's a beautiful foliage and it is something that can be clipped pretty readily. So there's a handful of them for you. What about the Australian connection? Is that Grevillea? Yeah, there are. Well, the grevilleas are going to try to spread. There are some very compact ones, uh, but they're going to try and go out more than I think 
she probably has room for them. So grevilleas are great. They're wonderful plants for all over California. They're they're not native, but they might as well be in terms of their tolerance of our, or their adaptability to our rainfall cycles and our heat and drought and all that kind of thing. I can't think of any that are going to stay small enough, but you might, if you have room for it to spread out a little bit more, the grevilleas in the rosemarinifolia group tells you something. Mm. Rosemarinifolia looks kind of like rosemary. And uh, they're quite adaptable as well. Very, very drought tolerant. Uh, so those are just several possibilities. And if you've got other questions about others that are more common in your area, you can certainly send us a follow-up email and I'll see if I can think about other low hedge plants. Boxwood is pretty drought tolerant, but if it gets drought stressed in extreme heat, it burns. You get leaf burn on it. It's cosmetic, but it's ugly. And it takes a long time to outgrow it. The African boxwood, Myrcene africana, is, seems to be more drought tolerant, more heat tolerant, but it's also bigger. So I don't know if that's going to fit. If you happen to go to one of the chains, you're likely to encounter Euonymus japonica microphylla, or the box leaf Euonymus. It has been a good plant in some places, but it's really prone to a particular scale insect that's really problematic and also gets mildew. So I don't sell it, but you're likely to see that. It's got a nice variegated foliage, might be attractive in your situation. Just be aware of those particular pest problems. The other things I mentioned typically don't have significant pest or, or disease problems. So we'll keep thinking about small plants for your situation, but I think that could get you started. Looking at our mailbag, I have a email from Jane who is at elevation of 2300 feet on the western slopes of the Sierras. Okay. And reading the question, I got really confused. So I'm going to do the confusing part first and we'll figure out that <laughs> and then we'll read her question. Okay. It's, she says, I'm in zone 9 8 and heat zone 7. What the heck is heat zone 7, Don? Heat zones have been attempted. There have been attempts at making heat zones that will be useful to gardeners and trying to decide whether they can grow certain things. I know Monrovia Nursery came out with a bunch of them years ago, and there's others that are out there. I have yet to find heat zones useful information because a high temperature in Sacramento is totally different than a high temperature in New Orleans. So <laughs> the humidity is such a big factor in, in uh, heat that I don't think the heat zone is an issue. So let's talk just about the two climate zones that people are familiar with, USDA zones and Sunset Western Garden Book zones. So let's go ahead with the question. We'll just focus on that part. So the USDA, USDA zones talk about maximum cold minimum, minimum cold, Not yeah. Anything. Minimum cold temperature, yeah. That's it. How That's cold all can thought. it get and still be okay? Yeah. Okay. And then the Sunset Western Garden Book has zones that include a lot of other components when they're when they're grouping things into zones is that yeah, right it, it basically looks as though they took the usda zones and did an overlay by topography because when you look at the once you get to know the sunset western garden book zones as we all did when we were working in nurseries in the 70s and 80s we just memorize them you could tell that it was um, regional climate on top of the broader temperature picture so i know that zone 14 where we are usda sunset zone 14 excuse me is hotter and drier than sunset zone 15 which has more coastal influence and so forth they're the same usda zone so all the usda zone tells you and this is important is the lowest temperature the plant can tolerate doesn't tell you anything about the highest temperature the plant can tolerate. It tells you nothing about that. So if we're in zone nine and it says the plant is hardy to zone five, hey, great, no problem. We can we can grow it at least with respect to cold hardiness. We know that we can grow it. It's a rather arbitrary okay. delineation because the zones are based on 10 degree increments. So they've divided them into A and B. So for example, we're in 
USDA zone nine. Well, are we in zone nine A or nine B? It's 20 to 25 degrees minimum winter temperature is zone nine A and 25 to 30 degrees minimum winter temperature is zone nine B. And right where I am, I go back and forth. <laughs> so that five degree arbitrary delineation has nothing to do with plant performance. It's again, arbitrary. So I just say USDA zone nine, but that's all it tells you is the lowest temperature that a plant can tolerate. It doesn't tell you anything about the high temperatures. So this is a pet peeve of mine in the nursery industry. A plant will come in with a label on it that says USDA zones four through eight. We're in zone nine, forsythia, spirea. They come in with that on them all the time, lilacs. And I look at it, I go, I really wish they wouldn't do this because it, they shouldn't put an upper limit on the USDA zones on the label. It tells you nothing about that. The only thing you need to know is what is the lowest USDA zone it can grow into. Uh, it doesn't tell you anything about the upper range. We can grow lilacs, peonies, spirea is just fine in USDA zone nine, but the labels say four through eight. Pet peeve, rant over, back to the question. <laughs> okay, so I'm assuming when she says she's in zone 9A, that's the USDA. DA Good. zone rather than sunset, right? Which means her low winter low temperatures are 20 to 25 degrees Fahrenheit. Okay. So here's the question. I'm about to order seeds for fall planting. I'm in zone 9A. How about plants which were, are labeled for colder zones? For example, I have already had success with Monardia, which yeah. is okay for zone four. Yeah. But can I willy-nilly order any seed that survives in zone four? Will it work? Yes. At the other end of the coldness questions, are plants labeled for my zone going to survive my cold winters, where it's common to get temperatures in the 20s and occasionally into the high teens? Is there a rule of thumb which will help me to decide? The low temperature, if you're in zone nine and it says it goes down to zone four, you can certainly order that. Now, one thing to keep in mind is that people in zones colder than USDA zone eight probably don't plant them in the fall. They probably plant them in the spring. So when you plant it, and we have this conversation all the time with people who are buying seeds off the rack at our garden center and every other garden center, the people who make the seed packets will say very commonly, plant in spring after danger of frost is passed on peas and things well, like that. Well, danger of frost is passed in the fall for it's, us. well no but it's not i mean that's the problem we get frost all winter but we don't get cold enough to injure the plants and so it is extremely confusing to people what they're saying is that in climates that are colder than frost i mean we're talking about temperatures down into the low 20s or below you would probably be planting those in the spring but here in usda zone nine we plant them in the fall peas snapdragons things like that calendulas stock pansies violas and so our the seed rack at your garden center and the seeds you're buying online are often labeled for a national market. They don't say, if you're in California, you're okay planting this in October. They just say, wait till danger of frost is passed. Well, the kind of frost we get isn't what they're talking about. So it's very confusing. I understand what, what her concern is, but we can make this simpler. If it says a zone lower number than where you are, you can order it and grow it. You may need to look up how to grow it in our zone. So that's what we go through. We just, just changed over our seed rack at the garden center. I just put all the fall planted seeds up for both flowers and vegetables. It's a little early, but we're getting towards that season. It's late for the summer stuff. So we make the changeover in the month of July. So people are looking at it and saying, we plant these now. I so said, we're getting ready to start planting Brussels sprouts, broccoli, cauliflower, all those things. I'm told by people who've lived in colder climates, 
You plant those in the early spring there. You don't do them in the fall. I don't know when you plant Brussels sprouts in Michigan. You probably don't do them in, in July like we do here uh, or August because we're going to grow them through the fall and winter and harvest in the mid to late winter. Um, don't think you're harvesting mid to late winter in Michigan much of anything. You can't get to the ground through the snow, Don. You have to dig out to the root cellar, I hear, and then go get your potatoes that you put in storage in the late season. Anyway, I don't know anything about that. Uh, what I do know is that our seed starting season is a totally different beast than what's on on the seed packets and what's typically even on the information online. This is one of the frustrations we have. Most of the major seed companies are either back east or in the Midwest or someplace where they just don't understand California at all. So Jane, in Jane, I believe, um, you can fall plant things because you're in USDA zone nine, even if the packet comes and says, wait till danger of frost is passed in the spring. There are exceptions, of course, and we can talk about those if you have questions about particular plants and when to grow them, make a list, send them over, and we can go through that on the air because I think it would be of interest to a lot of people. If you go to our charts at redwoodbarn.com, at least with respect to vegetables, we have it broken down for you. We're just getting gearing up now to start on planting seeds. Later, of course, you can buy seedling transplants of all the coal crops and the leafy vegetables and the onions and all that kind of stuff that we plant in the fall for harvest in winter and spring. Um, USDA zone nine, that's the way it works here in California. That's when we do those things. And that goes for a lot of flowers as well. We're just now planting columbine, our native columbine. We're planting it now because we want to sell it at our nursery in October. So that's the lead time we need from seed for that to be selling it in October for fall planting to have it bloom for you next spring. I'm sure nurseries in colder climates don't start their columbine seed in July or August for fall planting. They probably started in late winter for spring planting. So it really depends on where you are, but we can grow an awful lot of things here. And a big part of that is because we have that entire different season of September, October, November, when plants make great growth as the soil is cooling off and the days are shorter and we're getting into the rainfall season. Um, and, but it's still not cold enough to do injury to the plants, even, even in December or January, not cold enough to do injury to a lot of those plants. So she said in where she lives specifically mm -hmm. that her temperatures get into the 20s frequently and occasionally into the high teens. Yep. Now, does that mean that her zone really is 9A, 9B, 8? What is it? We go by the average. We do have extremes that are lower. I'm in uh, essentially 9A or 9B, but I've gotten to 16 degrees on my farm once and 19 degrees once. So, you know, if I here's the problem. If you take that one extreme and I go, okay, I guess I'm in zone 8B. I can't grow anything for zone 9. There's a lot of things I wouldn't be growing. I just know that every, I don't know, in the 40 years I've been here twice, it's gotten cold enough to do some injury. And by the way, it doesn't injure a lot of the things we're talking about. Coal crops are fine with that. Leafy greens are fine with it. Twice in the years I've been here. I had peas, regular garden peas, four to six inches up out of the ground, growing great. We got down below 20, those two episodes that I talked about. They were killed. I lost my peas. Okay. Uh, I could plant more. I didn't, it wasn't the end of the yeah. world. But That's the broccoli, yeah, the broccoli, the cauliflower, the, uh, the, you know, the, the lettuces and things that got a little leaf injury and that was that. And those were anomalous cold events, record setting events, record setting cold events. So uh, we go by basically averages, an extreme event, outlying event like that wouldn't make us suddenly go, okay, we're in zone eight. We went through this in 1990. We got to 16 degrees in 1990. It was memorable. We had a freeze that lasted for a week. We were below freezing for most of one entire day. That never happens here. The soil froze the top inch or so of the soil got 
cold, cold enough to injure the roots of certain plants. And so we had long discussions when certain tree species were killed outright to the ground, eucalyptus, gajeras, certain other rather popular species in California. Is this a one-time event or do we, do we continue selling those trees to people now that a lot of them were seriously injured? A lot of people started selling them again, going, okay, that was a one-time thing. Eight years later, 1998, we got to 19 degrees. And many of those species were killed again. Personally, I came to a philosophy at that point. I wasn't going to sell things that had been killed twice in one decade if they were trees. Um, so so we, we just have to make a decision about some species when we have those anomalously cold events, but we're mostly focusing on woody plants, trees, things like that. If you want to plant a hibiscus plant and have it freeze every couple of years, that's on you. But to me, having a tree in your front yard that freezes every decade or so, that obviously would be problematic. So uh, to answer your question, we go by the averages. So do you remember when Ilya wrote to us about her tomato flowers that were dropping off and mm -hmm. and had some rec some questions about olive trees and stuff, we answered that. So I have another message from Ilya. Thank you for answering my question about the olive trees. I like your suggestion for Mission Olive. Something mm -hmm. tried and trusted sounds good. If possible, please send a list of other varieties that you had mentioned. Um, I'm looking to grow olives for the olives themselves, not just the oil. Something simple and easy to grow. Yes, when would and I do, be the I, best time of the year to plant an olive tree? Anytime. I, for others who are interested in olives, just uh, go ahead and send a note to davisgardenshow at gmail.com, and I'll try to remember to pull up my, my special list of olives and their different characteristics. Some are grown for oil, some are grown for making into olives, some are grown for both purposes, and so forth. If you're listening out of the area and you kind of like the idea of an olive, they like dry conditions, they like heat. And so if you're listening in a place that doesn't have those things, uh, consider that. You might need to work on the drainage for the tree. You might want to put it where it is in a, your southernmost aspect, if you will, where you get enough sunlight on it. I know olives are grown outside of their appropriate range. And there are some species that are more cold hardy and some species that are more tolerant of wet soil and all that kind of thing. So if you're interested, I'd be happy to send you a copy of that. As I say, just send a quick note to davisgardenshow at gmail.com. It is interesting that there are actually pollination issues with olives. So it's kind of a funny thing where I spend most of my time talking to people about who want olive trees that won't fruit and how they're going to have to tolerate some fruit. And every now and then I get someone who really wants a particular type of olive, Castle Franco or something like that. I'll look it up and go, oh, fine, but you need a pollinizer for this one. You actually need two different kinds in order to get the fruit that you're after. I actually think, just for the record, I can't prove this, but it's my hypothesis. That the fruitlessness of olives is a function of how difficult they are to pollinate. And so pollinize, I should say. And so when I'm selling you Wilson's fruitless olive, and for years and years we'd sell that one, people would plant it, get really no fruit, no problem at all. More and more people are planting olives, both commercially and for fruit locally here in the Davis and Yellow County and Solano County area. And guess what? Some of those fruitless types are fruiting more than they should have or they used to. And I think that they're just getting cross-pollinated and they were harder to pollinate before. That may be all that's going on there. I had a, a guy who produced, I met him, produced this weeping olive, the Hid Shirtliff weeping olive beautiful tree. I have two of them on my property. They go up and then they go out and they weep back down and they were supposed to be fruitless. And the reason I have two of them on my property is that we sold them to a customer who could not have any olives whatsoever. And this one was said to be completely fruitless. They planted it. They're in South Davis. There's a lot of olives in South Davis. A lot of olives south of where these people were in South Davis. And our wind usually comes out of the south and olive trees are wind pollinated. 
they got a very light crop of olives on each of these two trees that were put in. Very light crop, but they had said, we can't have any olives whatsoever. And so they just dug them up. The gardener brought them back to me. They didn't even want their money back or anything. We'd had the conversation beforehand, so they understood the risk they were taking. Said, here, do whatever you want with them. I've planted them on my farm. It's a beautiful tree. If you're a landscaper out there, a landscape architect or designer, and you're doing a commercial project, and you're looking for a really nice olive tree, look for the weeping fruitless olive. But be aware that you might get light crops of fruit. In a parking lot, no big deal. It's a beautiful tree. But be aware that the, 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 the fruitlessness only exists on the Swan Hill variety. And again, in my experience, has been a fairly weak grower. So for those of you interested in olives for the sake of the fruit, send me a note. I'll be happy to send you a list and you can start, start doing some research on that. One of the things that is a sentence in what I just read is something simple and easy to grow. Well, olives are certainly easy to grow, but oh, you yeah. know, if you're going to process the fruit, look it up. Yeah, it's not that easy. You it's don't just pick it and eat it. Uh -uh. Yeah, yeah, that's always a fun thing to do to people. My brother pulled that one on me when I was a little kid. Here, look, don olives grow on trees. That's a yes. They are yeah. easy to grow, and they're very ornamental. And there's there's if you like the look of them, one of our best selling olives, if you will, is a variety called Little Ollie. Uh, and there's a couple other dwarf ones out there that people like to grow. Sometimes trained as like little trees, more commonly grown as a shrub. Very drought tolerant, very attractive, very tough. The olives love heat. They love dry conditions. And uh, that particular one grows like a shrub. So, uh, yeah, we'd be happy to talk more about olives. They do quite well here in the valley. And uh, they're a great addition to a low water landscape. So Ilya's next question is, we also have a spot for a citrus. We already have a caracara orange near there, and it's doing really well. So I was thinking another similar citrus near it. It's in the front yard, maybe six feet away, a very sunny spot. Mm -hmm. Could you recommend something? Yeah, um, bear in mind that Ilya is in Tiburon, which is in Marin County. Uh, and Marin County, of course, is right on the ocean. Uh, so citrus in the coastal zone, uh, you got to choose pretty carefully. You don't get the heat input that we get here in the valley. So citrus are generally not going to be as sweet anywhere in the coastal parts of California as they will just, just inland, even within just a few miles inland within the same area. I don't think there's any part of Tiburon that I would think is outside of Sunset Zone 17 because it's right down on the water. Citrus, uh, therefore are gonna be more tart. You're not gonna have the sweetness or the depth of flavor that you would get in the valley. But years ago, people from the Bay Area who moved to Davis, which is a very common phenomenon, uh, would mention this variety called Trovita. Trovita, T-R-O-V-I-T-A. I call it a spring orange. Uh, in my experience, uh, the navel oranges uh, ripen in the winter. We start picking them late December, the earliest January. They're really at their peak. February, they're still fine. It's so a midwinter. Then after they're done, come some of the citrus that ripen February to March. So I call those spring citrus. And one that has for many, many years been sold widely in the Bay Area and been mentioned to me by people from down in that area as having good sweet flavor, even with the lack of sun input that we get here is this one called Trovita. Should be a nice one to complement your caracara. Don't be surprised, for example, when you finally get fruit on your caracara, if they're more tart than what you would buy at the store. Because, of course, the ones from the store are grown in citrus growing regions like Fresno, places where they get high heat input. Yours won't have that. They'll have a distinctive flavor. You'll like them. You'll probably find yourself juicing a lot of them. Uh, you may want to have one that's sweeter to mix that juice with, and Trevita would be a good choice for that. Valencia, I've been told, does well in the, in the Bay Area. To me, I'm going to say this bluntly, Valencia is just a boring orange because... It's very low acidity, so it's just sweet. 
It's great for juice. It's your classic juicing orange, but you might want it for blending. But I think Trovita, Trovita will probably be a good choice for you. And the other well, question backing up when to plant olives, likewise, when to plant citrus, anytime is fine, honestly, with, with either of them. I prefer not to plant in the case of citrus in freezing weather or going into freezing weather. So those I prefer to do in the late spring or summer, olives can go in, frankly, anytime. There's no, no specific time that's better or worse for planting an olive tree. Well, today is July. And July is a month when there's a lot of stuff that we can look at. If you go to Don's calendar, you'll find beautiful flower pictures. You'll also find a list of opportunities of things that you could do to benefit your garden right now. And so I want to read a few of these because, uh, well, one, we keep saying uh, watering systems. Yeah. Not only check check daily water as needed, but... Check your watering systems to find out if there's any plugs that are plugged up or if there's any overlap and you're double watering something. Uh, just just check the watering system midsummer. Just make sure everything's still functioning well. Yeah, we get a lot of conversations, obviously, at this time of year with people about plants that are showing symptoms of something and very commonly symptoms of drought. And when we ask them how they're watering, they're confused because all the plants, they often say this this way, they're all getting watered the same. You know, all these plants in one. They region. don't need the same thing. Well, Some... not all, they're not right about that. They're not all getting watered the same because your emitters don't function perfectly. Your sprinklers don't function perfectly. No one has ever designed a sprinkler system that overlaps exactly perfectly. No, if you if you were able to measure the actual output through the whole zone, you would find it's not exactly the same. And very common situation is where in our area with, with well water, for example, on my farm and also in town, they get well water at times. Something gets in there, plugs that emitter, or you don't have a filter on the system, or you, you know, you just haven't been monitoring it carefully. So that is actually plugging up and only getting half of the output that you thought it was getting. And so you're, no, it's not all the same all the time. You got to check. Plant performance is your best guide. But uh, when you see a plant that looks like it's struggling and uh, you think it's getting watered the same as the others, the day after, the morning after your irrigation system runs, take a trowel and go poke around or take an 18-inch screwdriver and go poke around and see what's actually happening. And poke right next to the plant near the emitter. Okay, fine. Dig around there. See how moist it is. Go a foot out from that and a foot out from that and see how far out the water is going by capillary action if you have just a couple of emitters watering a plant. It's very common for, uh, well, one of the main things I do on my farm is monitor my irrigation systems, just make sure they're functioning properly. So the first thing I do, you know, you're walking through with hundreds of trees, See if one tree has a duller appearance. See if one tree looks a little more stressed or droopier. See if uh, if one plant in the whole bed is clearly not thriving like the others. Yes, you could be watering too often. We have that conversation with people, but more commonly, far more commonly, what we encounter is people not running their systems long enough. Too often, not long enough, the most common problems that we run into. One of the other things on the little list for for things to do in July is trees continuing deep root watering throughout the summer. Mulching helps conserve moisture and keeps the tr the tree roots cool. Yeah, right now we've got our crew at Tree Davis going around watering all the newly planted trees that we've put in within the last three years. Every tree is getting 10 to 15 gallons of water all at once every two weeks. And that seems to be a useful data point for a lot of people. And it doesn't sound like enough. I say it's not. It's it's the minimum. It's the it's what they need. They would love it if we'd go back and do that once a week. 
about every two weeks is what we have staffing and, and facilities for. So that's what they're getting. And we're getting really good results with that. With our soils in this area, that's working very well. If you're listening in, I'll take Tiburon as an example, you probably don't, your soil may or may not retain moisture the way ours does. Uh, but we're finding that one deep watering, 10 to 15 gallons all at once, that's really important. So it goes down past the existing roots and goes out past the existing roots because you're putting on enough water that you'll get not only penetration deeper, but capillary action taking it outward. You're making it possible for the roots to keep exploring out and down. Whereas if you're just giving the tree what it needs, just went through this with a customer with her avocado tree, just barely giving the tree what it needed every few days, it's not growing. It's not dying, but it's not growing because it its roots and she sent the picture you know i was can you just step back and take a picture of where the tree is it's the old citrus desert thing that i keep talking about only in this case it was an avocado planted little basin putting the water in the little basin bone dry soil all around it so the roots can't explore they can't get out of that nursery soil it's really important to water deeper and longer and less often those are the the key things we keep reiterating with customers who are having problems with their plants getting established in the summertime and you could always expand that circle so yeah. that instead of being a little one, you made it twice as wide. And that way you'd be watering further out and the, the roots would get further out. Yeah, talking about a three to four foot diameter basin. So you can put 10 to 15 gallons on all at once, standing there with a hose and filling up that basin works. And on my property, basically sometime along there, they've gone to the drip line. So each one has a couple of emitters. The next year I may add a couple more emitters further out. It's very common for me to go down the line and keep adding emitters to get the water zone for that tree widened out for it. Even better would be to run a loop around each tree. I don't do that, but at least I give them more emitters so they get a deeper watering when they do. All right, other things you can do. You can still plant celosia and cosmos mm -hmm. and spot in some of those heat-loving flowers like vinca. You can brighten shady areas with coleus and begonias. And you can still plant zinnias and things like that. There's still plenty of time in mid-July for any of those summer-loving flowers to bloom all the way through September and in, even through October, depending on the weather. Typically, all the summer lovers here go all the way into mid-October with no problem. And if we're talking about vegetables, this is the last planting of corn and beans, but you can start harvesting your summer vegetables. And if you do that regularly, a lot of them will just keep producing. Yeah. If you want to control your zucchini output, just stop harvesting. <laughs> right. And then you'll get one giant <laughs> thing. Yeah. You can yeah. ride it. Yes. It becomes <laughs> part of your, your uh, autumn displays of pumpkins and corn stalks and ripened zucchini on your front porch and lots of stuff to harvest right now i mean the list of things you could be harvesting from your garden is extensive you've got it right in front of you there well yeah kumquats and meyer lemons and valencia oranges for the citrus yep. then you've got apples and apricots and blackberries and grapes and nectarines and peaches and plums and pluots and for the for the fruit and then you've got basil and tomatoes and onions and squash and beans and corns and cucumber and potatoes? Am I supposed to be digging up my potatoes now, Don? Close. It depends on what the top looks like. You can always poke around in there. I mean, the, the growth cycle of the potato is that it grows and it blooms and it sets fruit and uh, sets fruit, excuse me, sets roots down below ground. And so when it's bloomed, they're starting. And after it blooms, it starts to look like it's dying down or like it's done with its life cycle. Then you really know that the potato tubers are forming down there. But go ahead and poke around. It's okay. You can take a trowel and just poke around and see what's happening. If you planted it in May, yes, uh, late July or early August is when you would typically be harvesting. Fairly small potatoes at this time of year because of the timing but a very good chance there's a good crop down there 
So it's in a pot and I'm just going to dump the pot out, but some, some of the stems are still green and flowers on them. And, but most of the stems have died back. If I leave them died back like that, that doesn't hurt anything for a little while, does it? Not really. It's perfectly reasonable to store them for a few more weeks in the ground, but poke around, see what's going on down there. Give us a report in the next couple of weeks. Yeah, well, I think I'll just <laughs> them out and whatever I get, I get. <laughs> okay. Cucumbers. Don't Take pictures. We want pictures of your cucumbers. We want pictures of your potatoes, Lois. <laughs> <laughs> you want a picture of me emptying out the potato container yeah, is what yes, you want, yes. isn't yep. it? Okay. So it's still July, but not for much longer. Yep. We're going into August. Now, you can do, still do the same thing in August in, as you do in July, can't With you? With some exceptions. By August, we are switching over to fall vegetable mode. Not necessarily planting them, although there are some that need to go in even now. We always want people to remember, if you want Brussels sprouts, you got to plant them in July. We've got some going. We'll be selling them at our nursery. I have to tell you, nobody ever buys them you know, at the right time of year. They come in in October looking for Brussels sprouts. Now is when you plant them. August <laughs> is when you plant the old-fashioned cauliflower and the great big heads of cabbage, the ones that need a long lead time. September is when we really get going on starting seeds and things of broccoli and cauliflower and all that kind of stuff. But it is time to start thinking about the fall vegetables. You know, if you've got that one zucchini plant that you're done, you've had enough zucchini, you've used every recipe in the book. All right, it's taking up about a four foot part of your vegetable garden. Time to remove that and plant some Brussels sprouts. Your family will appreciate it. Assuming they like Brussels sprouts. Okay, so here's a, here's a question. It came in. It says, passion flower vine getting demolished by caterpillars. What to yeah. do? Went yeah. away for a couple of weeks, came back, and the vine has been totally eaten. And my reply is, congratulations. You have Gulf Coast fritillary butterflies living yep. in your yard. And their young ones are prickly looking red and black caterpillars that eat everything. And then they turn into bright sunset orange butterflies decorated with white freckles. And I did put in a couple of pictures because I happen to have, guess what, passion flower in my yard. Yeah, passiflora vines, passion flower vines, and passion fruit vines, all in the genus Passiflora. Uh, some of them are very, very strongly attractive to the uh, mama Gulf fritillary butterflies, which we now have because of many people planting different types of passion flowers around Davis. We have an established standing population of this non-native butterfly in the area, the Gulf fritillary butterfly. Its only host plant is, I gather, passifloras. There's no native passifloras in the Sacramento Valley. Uh, and they don't oviposit on all of them, but they do like some of the most common ones. A lavender lady is what this this customer had planted. And her problem is that she planted one little vine. It's on one little trellis. It's just getting going. So the poor plant was only, I don't know, partway up a fence. And she was very concerned because she came back from a vacation. It was completely defoliated and she found the caterpillars so her question was what to do about it. I said well you know people actually buy this plant for this purpose they buy passion flowers to encourage the gulf fritillary butterfly and I often wonder as they're buying them if they realize they're buying a larval food source most yeah. of the plants you come into my garden center you say I want to plant things for butterflies we'll focus on flowers that will draw butterflies even the monarch folks you know understand I think that the milkweed is going to be eaten by the caterpillars of the monarch butterfly but all the other things I sell you that draw butterflies dianthus and all the daisies and things like that is for the flowers that draw them well in the case of passiflora much as with the milkweed and as with the dutchman's pipe for another particular butterfly you're planting a caterpillar food source and there if you remember your that extremely useful kids book the very hungry caterpillar caterpillars eat a lot of vegetation very rapidly and her plant was defoliated i mean she brought me a 
sprig in a picture, there are no leaves left. I said, yeah, this is a problem in two regards. They're going to come back and do this every year. I guarantee your passion flower will eventually get vigorous enough that it will be able to sustain even a surprisingly large population of Gulf fritillary butterflies. I have a customer who has about a 30-foot stretch of fence, which the previous owner planted passiflora's. And they get butter. You go there and there's butterflies all over 30, 40, 50 at any given time. The plant itself looks terrible uh, because it's essentially defoliated as much as 50% by the number of caterpillars that are on it. So we tolerate the damage because we're trying to grow the beautiful butterflies. If you want to kill them, it's easy to do. And there's something that does it, you know, pretty simply and, and effectively, which is the BT products that are very specific for caterpillars. Most people are using them for moth caterpillars, not butterfly caterpillars, but it works and it's specific to them and it's organic and it's safe and all that kind of stuff. I just would hate to have you do that. I mean, you know, it seems like when you're getting these nice caterpillars that turn into these pretty butterflies, she acknowledged she didn't want to kill the butterflies said, well, you can't kill the caterpillars without killing the butterflies. I mean, it's part of their life cycle. So she decided she would live with it. If you happen to come into my nursery, you'll see a fence going all the way around the parking lot. It has two vines on it. So this was my answer to her. Do what we did by accident, which is plant two vines, one of which is not a passiflora. Right. Uh, plant something else. Could be whatever you want, a honeysuckle or a trumpet vine. Ours happens to be a yellow flowered trumpet vine, incredibly vigorous plant. The fence is covered with the trumpet vine foliage interspersed with flowers of the passion flower, which continue all summer. And yeah, you can pick out the foliage of the passion flower, but by comparison, the trumpet vine is way more vigorous. Potato vine would be fine. Any of a number of possibilities. Some of the honeysuckles, if you you know, if you've got a safe place to put one of those, it can be pretty rampant. Be careful what you choose. Plant something to grow with your passiflora so you can enjoy the flowers, which are quite spectacular, and won't be quite so bothered by the fact that the larval stage of those beautiful butterflies is going to eat your passion flower vine. The other thing that I did by accident, because I planted a passion fruit not knowing. This was many years ago. And so now what happens is the ones in the back that are growing up into the cyclamen, I don't notice, I don't see. Mm-hmm. And so they escape me and they get up there and those things are so vigorous. But I don't care. They can go, the, the caterpillars can eat all of that and it won't bother <laughs> me a bit. Yeah. Um, but the, the one that I had in the front that was growing into and taking over a, a beautiful little bush that I wanted to keep. And that one, I got rid of the vines. Yes, so. as with as with any vines, read about them before you plant them, as I've yes. often said. My worst garden mistakes have all been vines and loises as well. Uh, Passifloras can be extremely vigorous, more so in the Bay Area and Southern California, where they aren't killed back by frost. There are very hardy varieties here, but the frost tends to nip their spread, in other words, contain them, but they're still quite, they sucker quite a bit. They come up from the roots and not right where the plant is. I mean, several feet away, just as trumpet vines often do. A container would be one thought, but it'd be constant watering. I mean, you would just have to water it all the time. So in the ground is going to be easier. And here's the other thing. The caterpillars don't go to every species of passiflora. I have lists of ones they do, and I can tell you ones I know they do, um, but they don't go to every one of them. So you might plant these intentionally trying to draw the caterpillar and have the wrong variety. And yeah, I don't have lists of that are complete because there's three to 4,000 species, hybrids, and cultivars in the genus. So it's an extensive genus. Most of them are quite tender and not suitable in Northern California, but the handful that are, some of the ones that are hardy here are very attractive to the Gulf fritillary butterfly. 
I was perusing your Trees for Our Area resource on the website and saw that Tilia, that's the linden, was on a recommended list. Is the Tilia aphid not an issue in California? Or is it simply not an issue in hot and dry interior California? As you know, uh, he lives in Santa Rosa, which is more foggy and humid than Davis, and he's seen only a handful of Tilia there. Should Tilia be planted more frequently? Uh, no, I live under one, and this raises two issues. One is that tree lists need to be updated periodically, and I don't think you're likely to find Telia cordata on my current tree list. It was on one of my older ones. I'll double check it. Here we go. Telia cordata on my current list. Aphids cause honeydew drip. Uh, that was from 2022 from a draft of the list. And the previous one about a dozen years ago, I didn't really mention that. I planted one in my uh, backyard Oh, 35 years ago. It's a beautiful tree. It's a very, very elegant, formal looking tree. It has a, a very tight growth habit. Mine is about 35 or 40 feet tall and about 20 to 25 feet across. And it's sticky underneath that tree from mid-May all summer. Uh, the Tilias are famous for getting aphids to the point that unfortunately people often treat them with an insecticide to control the aphids. And Tilia blooms come along in May to June. Yeah, they're beautiful and they're extremely attractive to honeybees. I mean, like it is one of the best trees you can plant for European honeybees and our native bees, including the Xylocopa carpenter bees and others. So if people are treating these trees for aphids, they're doing significant harm to pollinators. Mm. I can't think of a case now anymore where I would recommend a tilia tree because I'd only want you to plant it where the drip would not be likely to lead someone to treat it. There were some rather spectacular incidents up in Oregon where there was a parking lot filled with tilia trees, different species, but they're all very attractive to honeybees. And it was a parking lot, a commercial parking lot. So it was dripping on cars. So they went out and they took him to Cloprid and they treated all the trees. Thousands mm. and thousands of dead bumblebees were found on the parking lot. And this caused quite an uproar and even a change to the label of the imidacloprid product because that was an inappropriate use. You should not use these products on trees when they're in bloom. It's a long bloom season. So to answer the first question, specifically tilias in general, these are lindens, there's tilia cordata, tilia americana. They're going to get aphids and it's going to be consistent and it's going to be for a long time. So it's going to cause people to either prune them inappropriately or worse, treat them with an insecticide. So it's definitely coming off of my recommended tree list or it will be in the separate category of be aware of these pests and put them where it won't be a problem. Doing this larger tree database we've been talking about a couple of times is definitely not going to be on there. And we had a lengthy discussion about how do you resolve the problem of nuisance pests? On a, on a recommended tree list. Uh, you know, some of them were saying, well, if we take off everything that gets aphids, you know, what are we, what's gonna be left on the list? And I said, if it's likely to lead to inappropriate pruning or inappropriate use of an insecticide, it should not be on a recommended tree list. It's my opinion. And that was the consensus. Uh, people should, you know, casual, you know, oak trees sometimes get aphids. All right, big deal. It's not consistent, not a big problem all the time. You might even treat for it if you want to. We could talk about that as a separate thing. But it's not always going to happen with every oak tree. I can pretty much guarantee with some trees, the aphids are enough of a nuisance that it causes these two undesirable outcomes, tree removal or treating with a pesticide. The other example being Chinese hackberry, which gets a particular aphid that causes significant honeydew drip, not just mild, intermittent, but every year, I guarantee it's going to happen. And people were taking them out like crazy when that pest first showed up. Um, and so the insecticide treatment, which I've 
carefully helps people figure out how to do it safely, minimizing any harm to pollinators. It's a wind pollinated tree, not a, not a bee pollinated tree and so on. It's a long conversation, but I want people to do it right and not endanger the environment. Tilly is, I just don't see a way that that's gonna work. So to answer the question, no, it wouldn't be on my current tree list and I should probably update that. Also, I think that uh, when you went on the website, you were looking at one of my older lists because I leave them there for historical reasons. So I do need to go in and say, this list here for historical reasons, uh, it probably was an older list from a decade or so ago. So at the end of this message, it says, I would love to see a longer and updated recommended tree list. To that end, could you mandate new and interesting trees that we should all plant? What would be your top 10 shade trees or top 10 ornamental trees that you want us to plant? And I've got to say, I don't think there's any trees that I would say I want all of us to plant because <laughs> you don't want one tree to be too big a part of your canopy. Yeah, that's a crucial thing right there. When I'm, whenever I'm giving talks, you know, sometimes I'm putting on my Tree Davis hat and going out and talking about tree policy in general. One of the key things I really want people to take away from it is the importance of species diversity. And uh, well, there are new trees that we'd like people to experiment with and new trees that we've tested at Tree Davis that more people could plant. And I'll certainly be happy to give some examples of those. And we can do a whole program at some point. As we get closer to these, this tree list, getting finalized, these tree lists that we're talking about, this larger committee that's working on this, it would be a big topic. And I keep focusing at my end because I'm the like the retailer on the committee on the, the, the trees that the public would be interested in, the public would be aware of, which will be a somewhat different list than the trees that a landscape architect doing a design plan for a commercial property would want, or the, or the, the trees that the university is going to plant in various places where they lost trees in the big windstorm in 2023 in January. So it's a, uh, a complicated subject, so not too surprisingly, but the real key thing is that species diversity. I'll just go ahead and give you one example now, and we'll of course come back to this with a larger, longer program at some point. We sell a lot of Chinese pistache. They've been planting pistachia chinensis here in the Sacramento Valley, Woodland and Davis, since the early 1900s. There are trees that are over 100 years old in both of those cities, both Woodland and Davis, and many, many, many Chinese pistache were planted in the 1930s and 40s. So some of the older neighborhoods have big, beautiful pistache chinensis. In those days, they were grown from seed. So you had 50-50 male, female, and people who get the female trees aren't real thrilled about it. People really want the fall color, and that wasn't consistent from seed. So about 25-30 years ago, a cultivar, Keith Davy, male Chinese pistache, came on the market. Bright red fall color, male, so no seed litter, no fruit litter, and uh, very drought tolerant as the species is and great garden choice. That's pretty much all we sell now when someone comes in for a Chinese pistache. I'm not concerned about a retailer selling a tree in large numbers. I'm concerned about the city and uh, parks and others planting hundreds of the exact same thing. So Keith Davy pistache is still a great choice. And I will certainly, when someone comes in in the fall and wants a fall color pistache, I'll say, we know this one has good fall color. We know it doesn't have the fruit litter. So from a retail standpoint, still a great decision. But there's a new one, a new hybrid pistache, pistachia red push is the name, red push. It's a cross between two completely different species than the Chinese pistache. So we've got some species diversity there. It looks like the Chinese pistache, 
little bit smaller scale, a little bit smaller leaf, a little denser canopy from everything I've been able to see. It has the same beautiful fall color and it's male. So you only get male flowers. You don't get the fruit that you would get with a female pistache. And the name red push refers to the fact that it also, little feature here, flushes bright red growth in the spring, like, like Photinia does. It has that bright red new growth. So it has two seasons of, of color rather than just one. Part of what we like about it is it has that extra season of, blue, of, of colorful interest in the landscape. The other thing we like is it's a different, totally different parentage than the Chinese pistache. So we have hundreds, we have thousands of Chinese pistache around the area. That's great. They're about 10% of our canopy in Davis at this point. That's hitting up against a threshold that urban foresters like to use. Let's not get more than about 10% of one thing in, you know, on down streets and in parks and in green belts and so forth. Because if you get too much of one thing, it's fine until you get something that attacks that one thing. Dutch elm disease, emerald ash borer. That's a whole program right there on the things we've learned the hard way by planting too many of one kind of, one kind of tree. Um, so we want diversity. I would love to see people, as many people who, uh, who in the fall who come in looking for fall color and want that look of the Chinese pistache thinking, maybe I'll try this hybrid pistache, get a little species diversity out there. And then in the case of things like elms, where we went through an entire century of Elms being planted everywhere, elms getting diseases, elms dying out everywhere, elms being replaced with non-elms. There are now elms that are very, very suitable for street trees, for neighborhoods, for parks, for green belts. And these are very drought tolerant in some cases. There are several dozen varieties that have been introduced since the 1930s when elms all started dying out. And these have been tested. And we even have an elm trial on campus that's been going on for a couple of decades here. So a bunch of the varieties here at Davis have been tested with our summer irrigation or lack thereof, and they're great choices. So if you like the classic look of a Midwestern town or a New England uh, community where they had those great big wonderful elms lining the streets 80 years ago, you can we can work our way back to that again by putting in some, not a whole city of them, but just some of these new hybrids that are resistant to elm leaf beetle and resistant to Dutch elm disease. So there are new choices. And those are just two examples, a new type of pistache and these new types of elms. Definitely the topic of how to choose a tree and what we're going to be recommending for commercial, municipal, and homeowners separately. Uh, it would be a, a full singular topic for us to do, not just perhaps on the Davis Garden Show, but maybe also on Lois's other show, That's Life, as a follow-up to the previous tree program. Thursdays at 11 a.m. Pacific time here <laughs> in KDRT. You've been listening so to the Davis Garden Show with Don Shore. And Lois Richter here at KDRTLP 95.7 in Davis, California.